Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. And now your host, Eyal Levy. Welcome to the URM Podcast. Thank you so much for being here. It's crazy to think that we are now on our seventh year. Don't ask me how that all just flew by, but it did. Man, time moves fast. And it's only because of you, the listeners. If you'd like us to stick around another seven years, and there's a few simple things you can do that would really, really help us out. I would endlessly appreciate if you would, number one, share our episodes with your friends. Number two, post our episodes on your Facebook and Instagram and tag me at Levy URM Audio and at URM Academy and, of course, our guest. And number three, leave us reviews and five-star reviews wherever you can. We especially love iTunes reviews. Once again... Thank you for all the years and years of loyalty. I just want you to know that we will never charge you for this podcast, and I will always work as hard as possible to improve the episodes in every single way. All we ask in return is a share, a post, and tag us. Oh, and one last thing. Do you have a question you would like me to answer on an episode? I don't mean for a guest. I mean for me. It can be about anything. Email it to me at al at urm.academy. That's E-Y-A-L at U-R-M dot A-C-A-D-E-M-Y. There's no dot com on that. It's exactly the way I spelled it. And use the subject line, answer me al. All right, let's get on with it. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the URM Podcast. I'm A.L. Levy, and today we have a truly extraordinary guest joining us. Not only is he a renowned drummer in the modern metal scene, playing with some of the biggest names, you know, his band, Septic Flesh, he used to be in Decapitated, he's played with Behemoth, he's also a member of my band, Doth. He's known for his innovative and boundary-pushing drumming style and has built a massive following on his YouTube channel with over 100,000 subs. And if that wasn't enough, he's also made his mark in the world of music technology with the virtual drum instrument, Crim Drums, that he made in collaboration with Bogren Digital, which is an awesome up-and-coming plug-in company that I really, really love. So without further ado, let's give a warm welcome to the one and only Crim. Let's do this. Krim, welcome to the URM podcast. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. I know we wanted to do this for a while, but uh, both of us have insane schedules. And that was one of the things I wanted to talk to you about first was I know, I mean, I've known, everybody knows you do a million things. Yeah, that's true. Uh, I do. Yeah, and we've we've talked about this before about how to keep your sanity throughout it. Um, I know that we both like, talked about periods of feeling utterly overwhelmed, Mm. uh, you know, and we talked about having to reduce our workloads. And so I'm wondering, how do you strategize getting through a typical week? You have stuff to do for septic flesh. You have stuff to do for YouTube. You have stuff to do for crim drums. What I'm guessing probably more stuff with Bogren Digital, stuff with Doth, stuff with whoever else you're doing sessions for, you have drum clinics, like, and I'm sure there's a bunch of shit I didn't even mention. Um, you have a lot of stuff going on. How, how do you like, just take a typical week? How do you plan that out? It's pretty straightforward. First of all, I try to get the most information as I can, um, and try to write it down in like an old school calendar because I like to have it in front of me on a piece of paper. And then I kind of see already, okay, in this month, there's going to be a lot to do. And I like to use kind of every bit of free time to kind of work ahead to just have things done. So whenever there's like a small window where I could do like a video or, you know, do some content, then I try to do that. Sometimes I cannot plan because certain things are just popping up. It could be that you get an email, I don't know, from like Borgon Digital that they are planning to do some contest or they want to have more content going on to promote something. So it's always a little bit of being flexible enough to squeeze certain things inside. Yeah, and in general, I think it's just mainly that I have some sort of a motivation going on. I like to do that thing, you know, I like to be busy. 
Just the, the hard part is sometimes to also respect your own limits. Sometimes the mind wants to do more than the body is able to do, especially playing drums. I feel like I have a certain limit I can play per day, like spent behind the drum kit. And then everything else, if I would push too much, I kind of regretted the days afterwards. So it's better to have like a strategy. So I would use the mornings for practicing on the real drum kit. So right now my schedule is kind of that I wake up between 5, 5.30 a.m. I just uh, get up, get dressed, drink a coffee, some water, and just go straight to play the drums, which is pretty early. It's a great time though. I don't know. For some people it works, for others not. But for me, the main reason is that in the rehearsal space where I am based right now, it is just, there are many practice rooms and there's a lot of bands, maybe 40 bands or so with different schedules, which means that of course you will have people starting to rehearse on the afternoons and especially evenings. Some of them, you know, play through the night, but nobody's as crazy as I am and goes to play at like four or 5 a.m., 6 a.m. And that's fine for me. It works better than as if I would have to work through the night. I would prefer to just go to sleep pretty early and wake up super early to to record in the morning. So yeah, for me, it's fine to be in the rehearsal space like 6 a.m., 5, 6 a.m. and just play for like one hour, two hours. And then it's kind of enough because I feel doing more than that is not beneficial, you know, for, for my body. And it's, I get pretty tired and um, yeah so it's like two hours then I get back eat some breakfast and then there's all the other shit that I have to do maybe I have to go to the post office and send orders for my merchandise so I would combine that and afternoons I usually spend by doing organizational stuff writing back to people working on content so editing videos making trailers making thumbnails Basically nothing that is too physical. Being a content creator, most of the time is just doing all the editing stuff and, you know, planning all the posts um, and just, yeah, I, I did not expect that, but it feels like it just adds more and more as coming in because you kind of want to have a specific standard of things, you know, like a specific, specific standard of quality. That's what I mean. This requires quite a lot of time and I do all of it my own. So I don't have any people around me that would edit my videos or write any posts or pack the the orders for my merchandise. It's just one man job. Just you. Just me. Yeah. Do you like it that way? I do like it. Sometimes I just wonder if it is maybe not on the long run a little bit too much. I feel like I'm not yet in this position where I think it pays off to have someone else coming in. Because obviously you have to pay the person and it's just so that the outcome right now is, it, it doesn't make sense. So I'd rather, rather do it myself. That makes sense. The thing I've noticed also when hiring people to take on a role that you used to do, it really helps if you know exactly how to do it before you bring someone else in, because otherwise it's going to be, it's going to become their vision of what the thing is supposed to be yeah. for better or for worse, usually worse. So it's really, really good if you have enough knowledge of, for instance, how you, you want your videos edited. I'm sure that at some point with everything growing, you're going to have to have somebody editing your videos. I guarantee you that at some point that's going to happen, but that's just the natural evolution of a YouTube content creator is that they get an editor because it's too much, but if you know how, if you know exactly what the style is and what the details are, it's going to be so much easier than if you were to just find someone who knows how to edit videos. There's a lot of people who know how to edit videos and then have to train them to have your aesthetic, your feel, your sensibilities. The more established you are, the easier it'll be to make that transition. Yeah, probably. It's true what you said that you kind of have to catch the specific feeling. Like when I edit my videos, I feel like I add another level of crimness on, on top of it. <laughs> so, it's, <laughs> so it's just like not me, the performer only, um, but it's just 
the creativity by how I edit the videos, small details, if it's um, certain effects that I add or what I do with logos and stuff. It's of course not as professional or in such a high level as a professional editor would do, but I do what I can and I feel like it still adds a certain personality to it. I just forgot to say though that for the audio, for example, right now, I ask my bandmate Psycon, a guitar player from Septic Flesh, to mix my audio because he just he's doing that kind of uh, on a daily basis that he's, you know, recording bands and mixing. And for me, I've always been interested in also like the whole process, uh, recording, mixing, but I just feel like I can do much more on my own by video editing than audio. I feel like my knowledge and my tools that I have right now are not comparable, for example, to what he has. That makes sense. So actually I do have already someone involved. I should have mentioned that before, but the rest of it, I do all of myself, you know. My partner, Finn, I'm sure that people listening to this know this. He's the director of operations at URM. However, he's also a big fucking YouTuber with the uh, Punk Rock NBA channel. I don't remember if it's at 500,000 subs. That's a lot if it's 500,000. Jesus. 448,000 on his main channel. Wow. And he has a secondary channel where he puts up a lot of his uh, Twitch reactions. It just passed 100,000 subs. And I guess he's like uploading really frequent, right? Very frequent. And it's really interesting stuff. His opinion is with YouTube, if you're a musician or a producer, you know, if that's your thing. The audio, that audio has to be great. The video can be less good as long as the content's good, but you can't have shitty audio. You have to have good audio. That's uh, the rules. So it makes sense. If you don't feel confident in your mixing, get someone who can. That's a wise move. Yeah, and especially with the audio, I feel like I have way more people around me that do a much better job than me. I actually don't know anyone who's editing videos, for example, but... Audio engineers, I have a bunch of them that I know in my friend circle. I agree. It's just you have to deliver a certain quality. I mean, the content itself has to be good, but yeah, it has to sound good and it has to look good. I just, for me personally, with this YouTube channel, yes, I'm a YouTuber in a way, and I'm kind of since 2007, like the really early beginnings of YouTube, I'm doing that stuff. But I never really wanted to focus 100% on that. Like compare myself to, let's say, Samus, 66Samus, who completely Mm -hmm. turned from just having a YouTube channel and then, you know, having a job next to it. But then he quit and he's like streaming and throwing out content like weekly. I never saw myself doing that. I feel the most comfortable, to be honest, on stage and performing and playing. I think Samus doesn't want to or is not able to tour. Something It's something along those lines. He has some issues with the, his immune system, I believe so. He gets sick pretty quick. Yep. And, you know, I toured with him once. Dot toured with him in 2009. He was, uh, I think he was playing for Abigail Williams. Yeah, he did that. Yeah, he was phenomenal. I know. He's like a machine. It was like a holy fuck moment seeing that kid play drums. He sounded just like a Demu Borgir record. I guess he had his uh, his triggers set perfectly in whatever sounds he was using. And remember, 2008, 2009 is a little different than now. Oh, yeah. He sounded just like Puritanical or something. It sounded huge, even at these tiny places we were playing and his playing was so damn good. So I'm really glad that he found a way to still keep being an incredible drummer and keep doing it all the time, even, you know, without being able to tour because he's, he's great. Exactly. I wish that he would be healthy fully, that he could go back on tour and, uh, you know, enjoy playing live. But on the other hand, if he's happy what he's doing right now, and I feel like he's doing a really good job. He found his spot. People love it for a good reason. The content he makes is funny. It's great. He plays amazing. Um, he's very precise and super funny. And, you know, when you said Abigail Williams, I actually saw him also the first time with Abigail Williams here in Austria. Might have been... I'm not 100% sure. I was not yet in Decapitated. I actually didn't know about that I might be in this band. 
but I think it must have been 2008, something around there. I met Samus the first time in real life. We knew each other kind of from like YouTube content. And then later on, I toured with him. We did uh, Decrepit Birth, Decapitated. We spent a whole month to get in a tour bus. It was really funny. And then now it's like, it's great to see him, how he's building up his uh, YouTube channel and, you know, doing his thing. It's really nice to see that. You know, what's interesting to me about like your YouTube and his YouTube is that there was a time, and I'm sure you remember where, and it's not, I don't think it's accurate anymore, but there was a time when I guess the YouTuber thing was first really starting to get popular with musicians, where there was this idea that musicians with YouTube channels weren't real musicians. Do you remember that? <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah, but it's like who, nobody can say that about you or Samus or some of these other current players that have YouTube channels. That whole idea that YouTubers are just shitty musicians who couldn't hack it with music, that's a complete and total myth. But did you ever encounter that? Mm, not really. But maybe it was because that I was pretty quickly playing actually live shows and also having live footage on my YouTube channel to kind of prove that, hey, look, <laughs> it's not just faked in front of the camera, but mm -hmm. this dude is actually playing because the audio is so shitty. This must be from a camcorder or a phone and you cannot kind of cheat there, but it sounds tight. So I believe the same with Samus, the way he played and when you look at it, you know, especially as a drummer, you see certain movements and you know how they should sound. And if someone sounds extremely powerful, but the movement is very small, then something is off, right? Yeah. But uh, I can tell you with Samus, you know, whenever I heard him live the first time, I was like, this guy plays like a machine, you know, it was so spot on. And um, I feel like that we both, for example, have proven that we are actual musicians. We had bands, we were touring, um, so people could check us out. Of course, everyone has bad days and sometimes we had like popcorn on the kicks, I call it. So <laughs> Shoes in the dryer. Yeah, or that. But that's it's part of it. Otherwise, you can listen to the CD, right? Yeah, exactly. Speaking of those early days, I remember seeing a video of you from, man, I don't know, 2007, playing a Demu Borgir cover. Yeah. How old were you? I was 18. You look like a kid, but you played the song well. I remember seeing that and thinking to myself, well, I didn't see it back then. I saw it years later, but I remember thinking, wow, if I saw that now, I would think this kid had a has a future, which is interesting because I know that a lot of people see clips of young players, you know, ranging from 18 all the way down to five years old and will always say, wow, they're amazing. But I normally don't feel that way. I, I don't know. I'm just, I'm not impressed by shitty younger players because I'm an <laughs> asshole. But no, when I saw yours, I was like, man, if I had seen this in 2007, I would have thought to myself, I need to contact this drummer. You can tell from that video that there's a future ahead of you, a good one with drums. And so what I'm curious about, when you made that video back then, were you very much set on what you were going to do, like, I'm going to be a drummer in sick, real bands and be a professional metal drummer, like top level professional metal drummer. That's what I'm doing with my life. This is what's going to happen. Or was it just kind of a hobby you were good at? Like, where was your, what was your mindset back then? Well, first of all, thank you for the nice compliments. <laughs> I'm glad I made mm. such an impression to, to you when you were watching that stuff. Um, and yeah, you know, it's impressive. I was, <laughs> thank you. I mean, I was, I was still young and I was still, I just finished school kind of. And I started playing drums when I was 13, 14 years old. Like I started to really play uh, regularly and uh, I got my first drum kit with 14. And so... You know, for me, it was mainly about having fun and I love to play this instrument and eventually I got better. And the thing was, I just realized a little bit later, I already uploaded on YouTube 
that there might be a potential. But I would have never thought that I could actually achieve that because I'm from Austria. It's a small country and we're well known for our for good musicians. I mean, Mozart. Oh, yeah. There's a long lineage in Austria of some of the greatest music in history. That's true. But we talk about metal drums and, you know, like heavy drumming. Well, I, I realize it's not the 1700s anymore, but, <laughs> no. but still. So for me, like I could see when, when I started to play with uh, my first bands, you know, local bands, that somehow it's hard to break out of this circle. Somehow it's like always the same people supporting the same scene, which was lovely to have such a scene, but it was not in a professional way, obviously. So it was all underground bands. And um, so I actually uploaded YouTube videos because these were kind of practice videos. Uh, I saw that YouTube was there and I saw a couple of drum videos and I was like, hey, I could actually do the same. And for me, it was always a good way to check how I play by just recording myself. Because while I play, I could not really focus on sometimes how tight I played because I was just struggling to basically go through the song. And so I recorded all those old videos in my old school. I bored a camcorder. I had like four mics, one in the kick, one on the snare, two overheads. I run it into a small mixer and then from the stereo out straight into the camera, like without any EQ or anything. That's why the kick sounds like a piece of shit, <laughs> but it doesn't matter. You know, I didn't know. I, I tried to do what I had with all that stuff and just one takes, you know, no edit, go for it. And then whenever people wrote to me and like, especially with Decapitated or some bands before Decapitated writing to me, international bands like, hey, we like your stuff. Um, maybe you want to play with us. It just opened up a total different world for me. And I kind of the first time felt, hey, actually there might be a chance to do this in professional. But, you know, I just finished school and I wasn't sure what I want to do. Shall I become a sports teacher like my dad because I'm really into sports? Shall I study something else? What's my place in this world, kind of? And I also thought of studying drums, like jazz or pop drums, in order to be a professional musician after all. But YouTube kind of gave me a shortcut. It just said like, hey, look, you present yourself on a platform, you just play from your heart. You don't have to have actual any knowledge because it seems like people are still loving what you're doing. And you're basically getting offers from bands that you they want to play with you. So I was like, okay, I think this is possible. And then, yeah, of course, with Decapitated, whenever I got this email on MySpace that, hey, you want to maybe come to Poland to try out for audition, it, I knew this moment was like, okay, now the door opened. And I just have to grab it and do it, even though it was scary. You know, I was young. I never lived abroad. I, you know, I was just a kid, but I understood that, hey, this will be probably your opportunity to get into the business. And so this is how it started. You know, what's interesting to me about that is that I know a lot of people who don't recognize the opportunities or when they see the opportunity, they get scared and go the other way. As a producer, I've encountered many situations where the band that we've all heard of loses a, a lead guitarist, for instance. And I know somebody who can fill that spot who is not in a signed band, like someone from a local band, and I would recommend them and they wouldn't want to do it because they were afraid of leaving their local band or any number of reasons. And I always thought that that was, it was fascinating to me that people would have that reaction because the thing that's always worked for me is I'm always looking for what the next opportunity to advance is. And so when I see it, I've trained myself to immediately not question it. I just see it as like, it's usually not going to just land right in your lap like a gift. It's going to be like a clue or something that this could be a direction. So by the time this comes out, it's already announced that we signed a metal blade. So for instance, when the Doth stuff started going again, I did not think that labels were going to come into the equation. Not this quickly. I thought maybe eventually, like after releasing music independently for a while. But the moment 
that I had one conversation with one label casually, that gave me the clue that, okay, there's more of this, pursue this direction and keep going with it. And back, it was the same back in 2005 when I started to see, okay, there's a little bit of a clue that if I go in this direction, this could work out. So I'm going to go in this direction. That's how everything has ever worked for me. For URM, before URM, I was doing videos for Creative Live, educational videos. I never thought I'd ever do an educational video before I did the Creative Live stuff. And I was very surprised when those videos got popular. And I was surprised I enjoyed doing it. I thought mm -hmm. it was going to be super lame. I was kind of embarrassed to go do those things those videos, I was actually doing them as a favor for Finn because he was my friend and he worked for Creative Live and I was wanted to help him. Much to my surprise, that started to take off. And so that gave me the clue that, well, if I do this on my own, it can be successful. Like it's always been just like you get a clue that this could work and then you have to figure out how to make it work. But I've noticed with a lot of people, they see that clue and then they go the exact other way for some reason. Because it's scary as hell. That's why. It is scary. You're right. I guess because of the possibility to fail. When I decided to do that, I was like, I was scared too. And I was hesitated uh, or hesitating to say, maybe, hey, maybe I should say no. Maybe I'm, I'm not ready for that. This was a specifically a situation with the behemoth gig where I had to kind of fill in like, Last minute, you know, just learn a bunch of songs and play with them like a week later on a big festival. Mm -hmm. And I was like, fuck, if I don't take this, I will probably be hating myself for the rest of my life. But if I say yes to it, you have to deliver. Are you ready to deliver that? What does that mean? Does it mean? And I was like, okay, I have to. Am I actually able to learn these songs? Where do I am able to practice the stuff? Because at that moment, I didn't have a rehearsal space. And I was like, how shall I do that? A behemoth is no joke. No, it's not. That's yeah. what I mean. And if someone is asking you to do that, you the last thing you want to do is to not only embarrass yourself, but just let everyone else down with what you're doing. So it is extremely scary. And I don't know, I, maybe we both are a little bit risk takers sometimes, but I guess, I, think we, so. I guess we also understood that at some point you have to understand that this clue, there is a higher chance to success than with other things and you just go for it. That's an interesting way to look at it because I've always said that for me, the way I describe it is I see a path. Mm -hmm. Like if I can visualize and I don't mean this in a lame of visualize your future. I mean, if I can actually see the path, like the logical steps to how something will succeed, like with URM, I saw exactly how it would work. I had no clue if it would or wouldn't. There's nothing else like it. There's no way to know if it would work. But in my head, logically, I could see A plus B plus C plus D equals whatever, the next thing. It made perfect sense. And so with things where... I have decided not to go forward. It's because I couldn't understand the path to success. Like lots of people have asked me to like invest in their companies or like have brought me their business plans and they're usually garbage. And the reason is not that it's like not a cool idea. It would be in a fantasy world. It would be cool if this idea they had worked, but I just couldn't understand the path to success. And I've felt that way with lots of bands I've seen or just lots of things that have come up. But the things that I have pursued, I've always been able to understand how it would work to some degree, like to make a good guess to where it didn't seem as stupid as, you know, jumping off of an airplane without a parachute or something. Yeah. 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 The, how's it called? Risk assessment? Is this the word? Yeah. Risk assessment. Some, some level, obviously, you know, if it's a risk, there's still chance of falling on your face. Of course, there always is. I mean, even if you get out of bed, there's a chance that you just immediately yeah. break your leg for some stupid reason. Yeah, it happens. But you know what What you were just talking about with Behemoth, the can I do it idea. So you hear this a lot in Riff Hard and URM. And I know actually everybody I know who has had any success in creative fields has this imposter syndrome feeling. I don't know if you get this, but this feeling where people are like, 
why me? People don't know that I suck or people don't know that I'm a fraud or I don't belong here. They're making a mistake. They don't know what they're doing getting me. It's like these weird feelings like where whenever I've gotten those feelings, I just do the thing anyways. Like I just, those feelings will happen and then I just ignore them and just keep going Mm -hmm. because I know that it's just, you know, it's just a voice in the head. It's not reality. And I hear a lot of people on URM who get those feelings and it cripples them. Like they just don't, they just don't move forward. Like that stops them from trying. And the thing that I wish they'd understand is that almost everybody who has any success with music gets those feelings at some point. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Just for me, you know, I realized that you can be the best player and you can practice your ass off every day. But if you are not able to you know, take certain chances or see those opportunities when they're coming. Because to be honest, you have to be also quite lucky. You have to be good. Mm -hmm. You have to be consistent. You have to be respectful. You have to do your job, basically. But on the other hand, I was lucky that I uploaded the videos at a time where YouTube was still new. There was not a big competition, even though I don't want to say it's a competition, but there was almost nothing up there, right? No competition for views, that's for sure. Yes, but you know what I mean, competition between musicians. But I had the chance to be part of something that just started to grow and it opened me up a place where I could present myself and how I play. And this opened me another door for, you know, becoming a professional musician. And then I started touring and eventually, you know, at one point you will maybe leave from a certain band and you don't know what's going on because there was another thing where I felt really scared of like, I just say no to my dream. You know, like when I left Decapitated, I had nothing at that time, like nothing else after that. But it just, you know, it just didn't feel right. Um, to continue with that band for specific reasons. But um, so it was extremely scary because I was like, you just worked your ass off to be in this position. You don't know what's going to happen next. Are you sure you should do that? But I felt not really good, you know, playing my instrument. And so it was kind of a logical situation. And I understood that there will be other opportunities. You just have to keep going and be busy, Mm -hmm. do other things. And then I started to do do more of my solo project. And then eventually Behemoth came and that was because we toured together with Decapitated and Behemoth and they saw me every day play. So they knew, okay, there's a guy that can pull off stuff. And whenever it was about time to find a replacement for Inferno for that time, they said like, maybe the Austrian guy can do it. And then they called me. So it's like, one thing after another. Sometimes you just have to work and work without seeing any results at the moment. But everything you do will, you know, help you in a way. Like right now I'm doing videos. Maybe, you know, I'm not like the typical content creator that does advertisement and gets paid shit sort of money. I just keep going and doing my content. But I know that by doing so, I'm building up the brand Krim, me, my mm. name as a drummer, as a musician. And this will maybe be interesting for my brands that I endorse. Uh, it will be interesting for all kinds of people I work with. So these are things I understood that you just have to be lucky. And then whenever there's the, the moment that you get the opportunity, you should be smart, realistic, but also take a little bit of risk. Otherwise, nothing will happen. You will stay always on the same spot. You have to jump into the cold water. You have to push yourself. Otherwise, yeah, that's you're going to stay where you are. Hey, everybody. If you're enjoying this podcast, then you should know that it's brought to you by URM Academy. URM Academy's mission is to create the next generation of audio professionals by giving them the inspiration and information to hone their craft and build a career doing what they love. You've probably heard me talk about Nail the Mix before, and if you're a member, you already know how amazing it is. At the beginning of the month, Nail the Mix members get the raw multi-tracks to a new song by artists like Lamb of God, Angels and Airwaves, Knock Loose, Opeth, Meshuggah, Bring Me the Horizon, Gojira, Asking Alexandria, Machine Head, and Papa Roach, among many, many others. Over 60 at this point. 
Then at the end of the month, the producer who mixed it comes on and does a live streaming walkthrough of exactly how they mix the song on the album and takes your questions live on air. And these are guys like TLA, Will Putney, Jens Bogren, Dan Lancaster, Tui Madsen, Andrew Wade, and many, many more. You'll also get access to MixLab, which is our collection of dozens of bite-sized mixing tutorials that cover all the basics, as well as Portfolio Builder, which is a library of pro-quality multitracks cleared for use in your portfolio so your career will never again be held back by the quality of your source material. And for those of you who really want to step up their game, we have another membership tier called URM Enhance, which includes everything I already told you about and access to our massive library of fast tracks, which are deep, super detailed courses on intermediate and advanced topics like gain staging, mastering, low end, and so forth. It's over 500 hours of content, and man, let me tell you, this stuff is just insanely detailed. Enhanced members also get access to one-on-ones, which are basically office hour sessions with us, and Mix Rescue, which is where we open up one of your mixes and fix it up and talk you through exactly what we're doing at every step. So if any of that sounds interesting to you, if you're ready to level up your mixing skills in your audio career, head over to urm.academy to find out more. It's not so bad if something fails. I mean, I don't agree with the people who say that they like failing. You know, there's this whole like... Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, this motivational speaker thing where they talk about failing is good. No, failing sucks. Sucks big times. It sucks. (laughs) I don't know what the hell they're talking about. I fucking hate it. But the thing is, it's really not that bad. There's way worse things that can happen. So a project you tried failed. So what? Like, it sucks. The thing there is, do you let that define you or do you just keep going, right? And if you keep going, things will probably be okay. That's what, I, what I've what i noticed. It's really not, not that big of a deal if something fails. I mean, it doesn't feel good, but just keep going. You just keep going. And sometimes it, if it doesn't work out, then yeah, do something else. Or maybe it was not the time yet to do certain things. But um, I totally agree with you saying that failing sucks or it is extremely uncomfortable. Looking back, maybe after you have digested your failure, let's put it this way, you might see the positive outcome like, hey, maybe I wasn't ready yet. Maybe I should invest more in practicing or get more experience in certain things before I will try again playing for a bigger band or whatever. But still, you just have to do certain things. Yeah, even if it's uncomfortable, you just have to take a risk and go for it. Yeah, that's the big thing is whatever it takes, you have to get some level of comfort with risk. You know, I see this with a lot of producers too. A lot of the successful producers that I know, and I mean, a lot of URM students too, who they might not be students anymore because they became pro and don't have time or they're students, but they only log in once in a while. But a few of the ones who have become successful and then also just people I know who have become successful, oftentimes it involved a massive risk, like moving to another country or another city. Like I know certain people who lived on the East Coast of the United States and then put all their shit in a car and drove to Los Angeles without having a gig there and just did it. And then within a couple of years, were working for like some great producer. And then within a couple of years from that are like getting paid a little better and I mean, this shit takes time. So they put themselves in a very rough situation of moving to a super expensive city where there's a ton of competition. Hmm. Like that's, that is definitely throwing yourself in the cold water in the deep end, trying to swim with combat boots on. But I've seen it work. I know one guy who came all the way from Jordan, Jordan in the Middle East, made his way First, he got to Columbus, Ohio, okay. somehow, tried to work at a studio there. And from Columbus, Ohio, he made his way to L.A. Mm-hmm. and uh, got in the industry that way. I've seen Jashek, for instance, from Bogren Digital. Yes. He's an old URM student. He used to live in San Francisco. And I remember talking to him as a URM student about how he was starting to get very worried because 
he was like 35 and still hadn't found a studio to work at. He still didn't have his audio career together yet and starting to get scared about age, which is, it's a valid, valid concern. And one of the things that I told him to do was, look, man, it might not be in San Francisco. It might be, who knows where the opportunity, it might be in Sweden. What you need to do is you need to start putting, figuring out where these places are that you want to end up and actually find a way to go there and start meeting those people. And just, you have to, like, it's not working for you here. You're not getting younger. What do you want to happen? Figure that out. And then Mm -hmm. physically start putting yourself in those positions. And that's what he did. And before I knew it, he's working with Jens. Before I knew it, him and Jens are starting this software company. You know, before I know it, he owns a house that Jens used to live in. (laughs) I've seen that happen so many times. And it's always the people who just, it's not like they're not scared. Everybody's scared of doing this stuff. Of course, for sure. They just do it. That's the difference is they're scared, but they do it anyways. Yeah. And it's also nice to to see that it is possible. I I feel like it's very impressive and it's like motivating you to to try to also fulfill your dream right i mean for me it was the same thing i kind of understood i will probably not be able to become a famous metal drama in austria so i i said fuck i'm going to poland i don't know the language i don't i know three people i've never lived anywhere else except my home in my hometown but i'm just going there and uh, see how it goes and eventually, you know, one thing led to another. And yeah, it was good to do that. And it's nice to to hear that it's possible multiple times, not just, of course, for me, but for other people too. As you said, everyone is scared. Absolutely. I don't, like people with feelings and humans do have feelings. (laughs) Everyone is scared. And that's fine. Yeah, it's totally fine. You know, it's it's how it's supposed to be. Uh, And I think it's also good because sometimes you have to... um, trust your gut feeling but if you would do certain things without thinking about it or thinking what are the possible outcomes you might wreck yourself right or you will be living on the street so it's always like a balance between can i do that do i have enough trust in myself what are the outcomes you know what is option a option b option c and um because what's the other thing i will just be at home but I might not be able to fulfill my dream. And so I'm 100% sure everyone has their moments where they're just like struggling, not sure if it's going to work out. But then, you know, you keep trying, you make connections, you find your way, you find your spot where you can be, where you can grow. And yeah, Jacek is a perfect example for that, you know. It's really cool to see. So speaking of Bogren Digital, you know, like I don't produce bands anymore. Like, so right now my my extent of music is the Doth stuff. That's like the only thing I do. So I didn't actually try Crim drums until very recently mm-hmm. just because I have a workflow that was working with Easy Drummer. It just I had a template. It works. And so like I wanted to try Crim drums, but I just didn't want to fuck with my workflow. Understand. So I tried it recently though. And holy shit, man, sounds great. And I'm not saying this just because like I'm biased towards you or anything like that. Like if I didn't think it sounded great, I'd just kind of try to avoid it in this conversation. (laughs) Yeah, you could have also (laughs) put it that way. (laughs) Not bring it up or something. But people I trust had told me that it sounded great. I was just a little... Not skeptical. I just didn't want to fuck with my workflow. That's all. Sure. But I did try it and damn, man, it sounds great. Like I'm shocked by how good it sounds actually. That's perfect. <laughs> what else can yeah. I say? I mean, I'm, I'm really happy to be honest. It was also like an experiment, you know, it was, but it was again, in my opinion, a moment where one thing led to another because I was in Sweden. I just finished recording a Septic Flesh album. And to be honest, it was a tricky album for me to record. And, you know, with Jens, it looks like this, that if you book one week of drum recording, he will probably show up one or two days afterwards. You just work with an assistant. 
And so he's there for recording purposes. And so for this recording session, we did that in Fascination Street Studios in Studio Gröndal in Stockholm. And Jens mm-hmm. is not based in Stockholm. So he had to come over and he came in the night. And so we recorded the songs and we have finished the album. And then all of a sudden Jens comes inside and he's like stroking his beard. And he looks at me, he's like, hey, do you want to maybe make a, a drum sample library with me? And like, you mean just sample sheets? No, but an actual drum instrument. But when? <laughs> like now? But I'm leaving like in... <laughs> Two days or something. Yeah, but we can still try. I said, okay, yeah, sure. So let's get started. And then he ordered like extra skins. And from there on, I was like sampling for 14 hours straight drums. Oh yeah, it takes forever. (laughs) It takes forever. And we went through the cymbal stash they had there. Literally till the last moment, I said like, okay, I can do one more crash and then I have to leave. Otherwise I will miss my flight. Jens was already gone. So I kept uh, sampling with the assistant and we were not sure if it's going to work out or not, but eventually did. It just took quite a bit, I think two years or so. And what I really like about it is that it's pretty straightforward and you do not have too many options, which I actually think is good. Yes, very good. Because the focus is on just a couple of things. You can still mess with them and you can still change EQs and whatever, but it's just one drum kit. You know, you have a couple of toms, you have it coated and clear. You have just two snare drums. You have a bunch of different cymbals, but not too many. So it's pretty compact, but it works. So I'm really glad that Jens asked me to do so, uh, that like we are doing it together. I'm really happy as well because I feel like it's, it's a different drum sound. It's very powerful. Yeah, it is powerful. But a friend of yeah. mine said like, hey, I really like your instrument, but I use it mainly for like pop productions, especially the snare because it's so open, you know, it has it has a mm-hmm. ring and you can, I miss that in other, you know, drum instruments. So I feel like it's good that we have tried to be a bit different compared to other. Totally. And what I like about it having few options, like personally, I like gear like that where it's like, this is what it does. Maybe there's a a couple different things you can do with it, but pretty much this is the thing it does. And so you know what to use it for. To me, that's my favorite kind of stuff is where something has a sound to it, has a sound, you know what that sound is, and hopefully you like that sound, but you know what it is that the tool, because I just see plugins and any audio gear as It's just a tool. Of course it is. I don't have any personal feelings ever about gear like some people do. Like, I don't give a shit. It's just tools. And so my favorite ones are the ones that have a very specific thing about them, that that's what they do. You know what you're going to get with it. And so I like it. It's very easy to use. It sounds great. And it doesn't, like you said, it doesn't sound like other ones. So it's a very, very specific thing. Obviously, it's not going to be appropriate for every single situation no, of course imaginable, not. but for the things that it's good for, it's fucking great. And uh, I'm not trying to do a Crim Drums ad, but uh, <laughs> it really it really is awesome. It really is. Thank you. Appreciate it. I want to talk about Doth and No Rest, No End a little bit. Right now, with this podcast coming out, the only new song anyone's heard is No Rest, No End. And that's a song that we almost didn't make. Yeah. I just remember sending back and forth the stuff and like, shall we do it or shall we not? And what about this part? And I just remember it being like, it is already fast, but I remember you sending me at an even faster tempo. And I was like, how (laughs) shall we? Yeah, it was. We cannot do that. I mean, it's so busy. We have to calm it down a little bit. Thank you. (laughs) I think it was a smart decision, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I listened to that. So basically, I think the original version was a 220. Yeah, 220. Then we tried a 210 and we settled at 214. I listened to the 220 version the other day and I was like, oh man, it's already stressful enough to try to play this. At 220, look, I know there's some bands like Arcspire or whatever who who play that kind of shit at 300, but uh, I'm not that guitar player. It's a different kind of music too. Yeah, that's true. And uh, it is specifically, this song has so many layers and uh, is so dense that I feel like if you would do it even faster, you you would lose 
the quality of each of the layers, it will be just rushed. It will just sound like watching a YouTube video at 1.5 speed, you know? Yeah, <laughs> you're right, you're right. So I remember that, that we were very specific in finding the right tempo that still is like fast. Obviously the song, yeah, doesn't give you any rest, obviously. <laughs> and it's like a, from start to finish, it just, you kind of like, <gasps> what was that? And you just a little bit overwhelmed in a positive way, obviously. So it is a trip, this song. And uh, I just feel like that by finding the right tempo, all the elements work perfect right now. That's one of the things that I think actually a good producer helps bands with that. But I think that that's one thing that people who are listening who are in bands should really spend a lot of time with that. That determines the feel. That determines everything. It's like all the way to how the vocals sit, how they come across, like literally everything uh, is determined by that tempo. That tempo, are the do the wrists feel good? Do they feel rushed? Do they feel slow? Like it's literally everything is built off of that. True. So it's so important to figure that one out. Yeah, but sometimes you just don't know. And we did basically, yeah. we tried out all different options. I mean, we did the smart thing of doing like uh, demos and working with MIDI drums so we could easily just change the tempo, listen back and forward and kind of get an idea like, hey, how does this feel for you? It feels good, but it could be a bit faster, but not too fast because, you know, we should be able to play that and it should have also some sort of a groove, a certain feeling, right? And yeah, so I think for this song... Um, especially also with all the layers that are happening and because we knew it only or I knew it mainly in a, in a demo state and then afterwards when I just heard what else will come on top of it you know extra samples extra guitar layers and I was like wow it's even denser now <laughs> <laughs> yeah I tend to think in terms of layers how did you go about memorizing it I'm curious about that because for me I'm thinking in terms of key changes, riffs, melodic changes. Like what what's going through your head when you have a very complex, like the middle section, for instance, it's complicated. There's a lot happening, lots of changes. How do you memorize? Like what are you thinking about when you memorize or are playing a complex section like that? Yeah, for me, the most important is like what is the main thing that holds everything together is usually the rhythm guitar or the riff. And I remember this this Baroque part specifically, you sent it me with like a bunch of leads on top and like melodies going up and down on both sides differently. And it was just like a lot going on and I wasn't sure what to hold on to. So that's why I tried to just listen to the rhythm guitar and trying to figure out where certain changes are in the feeling, in the pulse, you know. I would then make my own click track, which sometimes is not necessarily what the actual time signature would be, but something that would indicate me the certain feeling or where a change would happen. So for me, when I also recorded that song, I listened just the rhythm guitar and the click track, because that's the main thing I focus on. Because with the layers afterwards, you might sometimes lose a little bit the driving force. Yep. And for me, a driving force is actually the combination of riff and drums. The bass, yes, but the bass is just, it's not for me crucial because in terms of knowing where I am in the song, mm -hmm. I need, of course, to have a thick bass sound after all in, in the production, but for memorizing parts, the less information I have in terms of like to process for me, for my brain. Um, is better because I have the riff. I know this is, it's that long. This is where the change is happening. What could be the time signature? I will focus specifically on this note. Then I know, okay, now comes the fill or now comes the double kick part. So that was for me, that's how I work usually. Just one rhythm guitar, figuring out what is the feeling of this riff and then trying to match my drums to that. Do you memorize the riff, like when you're learning a song? Yeah. So for me, you know, I'm self-taught and 
the way I learn my songs is never really by transcribing everything, like anything. So it's just repeating, like listen to it, repeat it and building it up. Like I would play the first seconds of a riff and just loop it constantly until I memorized this riff and I figured out a drum part that works for me. And then I would add a little bit more, but I would continue repeating everything from the beginning. So eventually it gets longer and longer and longer. And yeah, everything is done by ear. I have to memorize it from my in my head uh, by listening to it. It's never really writing it down. Just but when it's very complicated, specific rhythmical pattern, it sometimes helps to have a visual thing. So I would watch actually MIDI notes. If there's a program drums, for example, I would watch the kick pattern mm-hmm. in front of me, knowing that okay, it's two kicks, then three, then two, then four, then a three, then two, whatever. But it's still not notation in terms of writing it down, like actual drum notes. It's just uh, having a visual, or like I do this with the wave file. I see where the peaks are and I know that this one is a snare and this one is a kick. And I would watch, while practicing, I would watch the waveform passing by. And this is kind of my notation. So when you go to the studio with a song like No Rest, No End or Septic Flesh, whatever, when you are at the studio working with a producer, an engineer, what is it for you that you look for in a engineer, a producer that give, makes you comfortable and you feel like you can do your best work? Because, you know, most of the listeners of this podcast are producers. So I want to hear from a drummer's perspective, mm-hmm. what can a producer or an engineer do to help you feel like you want to work with them again and because you're able to do your best work and you like the way the it comes out. I think a producer has to find this thin line of letting you try out different ideas, but also guiding you. And specifically with Jens, I remember first time I was working with Jens, I heard some stories that he's very critical and, you know, you will have to play a million takes and he's, you know, very strict, blah, blah, blah. So I I felt a bit like, okay, I don't know how it's going to be the session. Maybe I will be completely destroyed after it. But then we started to record and I understood that he is always looking for a specific character when you play. Like he didn't care too much about what are you playing if it's always the same. He would rather say like this take had the right attitude even though the kick was a bit sloppy, but we can fix that. But I just love how you played that, what feeling you had. And musically, it made more sense to play it this way. And that's what I really appreciate about Jens is that he he guides you. But he's not telling you straightforward, you have to play like this. This is the only way that it can be done. But rather just, you know, giving you options. With most of the engineers I've worked with and those I have continued working with, this is exactly the thing you want to feel comfortable with them. Of course, they should know their stuff. They should know how to mic the drums. They should know something about tuning the drums and whatnot. But when you record with them, I liked... I feel like those are assumptions, right? (laughs) If you're going to work with someone, you assume that they know how to do that stuff. Yeah, but sometimes you never know. And so I like to have someone who as I said, guides you and um, is also prepared. Like usually I try to be as prepared as I can by, you know, preparing the click tracks, all the playbacks, send everything in advance, just uh, making sure that everything, everyone is on the the same, you know, same spot with everything so that the tracking is smooth as possible. And so I feel like you should support, especially as a drummer. I tell you one thing, it's a very physical instrument and sometimes you will overplay or sometimes you're not ready for the studio of course this works for other instruments too but i feel for drummers it's even worse so sometimes you have booked a studio month in a ahead and then you come to the studio and you feel the worst you have ever felt because you just you just practice too much and for some re- reason you have this uh, blockage in your head and you cannot mm. do it or you, your hip is you know, fucked up from playing. I've been in situations like this and 
That would have been the worst if the producer would just basically try to force me to do certain things, you know, or so like, no, you have to do that. Like you have to be a bit flexible and um, understand it's a very difficult thing to do to play this fast <laughs> stuff and play heavy and play with feeling and groove. But yeah, give the drummer a little bit space and give him options, lead him to the best take, not force him. Maybe let's put it this way. You should lead him towards it. Like you can say, this take was good, we keep it, but I think there's a little bit more in you. You can do that one more time. We have it, or let's let's just do one more for fun and see what it does. Because sometimes exactly such words will take away some of the stress that you have all the time. Because as soon as the red button is hit, you forgot everything. You just throw the techniques out of the window and you just survival mode. You just play. That's what I'm really looking for in, in a good engineer recording drums. You know, one thing that I always used to do with drummers, and this really worked with, it worked with all of them, but especially the really, really good ones, is I always thought, I want you to feel the way that you feel when you're like on your third or fourth song in a set. Exactly. Not warmed up before the set because you're never really fully warmed up until you're actually three or four songs into the actual set. That's how I want you to feel when we're recording. I don't want you to feel the way you do after just playing on your pads for a while mm -hmm. and like stretching. That's not warmed up. That's like pre-warm up almost. And it's a mental thing too. It's like, like that looseness and also the full body warm up. It's a mental thing too. That's why I say like the way you feel three or four songs in because that's when the adrenaline starts to subside. You start to feel more normal, but you're warm and loose. So what I would do is we would just loop the song. I'd record every take. I wouldn't tell them I was recording every take. <laughs> I know that trick. <laughs> yeah, but I wasn't planning on keeping them all. I'd say, why don't you just play this over and over until you feel exactly like that, like you're on song four of a really good set and then we'll record. So it would take them like they'd play it for like 30 minutes mm. and get really, really, really warmed up, really loose. And then it would only take like three takes through the song after sure. that and we'd be done. And then for the next song, let them do the same thing. May It takes a little less time to get to that point, record and three or four takes and we're done. And they're great. I noticed that it's like a longer prep for every song, but the actual time of recording is way faster. Mm -hmm. They feel way better about it. I still never try to go past three songs in a day, even though, yeah, some of the drummers, they, I feel like drummers, especially because it's such a physical thing and they're like athletes. So they have the very, I can do it I have to do it kind of like <laughs> athletic mentality. Yeah. And so even though they physically could keep going, like I could tell when we have passed the peak sure. and we're now on the way down. For and sure. Because they're, because they're athletes and they're motivated, they believe oftentimes that they can just keep going. And they probably could. Once I felt like we were past the peak, if we had enough days, obviously, because at the factor and how much time you have, I would then just stop the session then, no matter what, like even if it was only after six hours or whatever, never allow it to go into one of those crazy sessions. Even if the drummer is like pressuring me really hard. It's dangerous. It's dangerous, exactly. It's super dangerous. Yeah, better for them to rest, recover, come back the next day, we do it again and feel just as good on the next batch of songs as we did on the first batch rather than have three amazing and then everyone gets a little worse from there and then they're completely sore the next day and it just kind of sucks of course and um this technique i actually do this most of the time just for certain songs which are extremely complicated it's better to do it part by part, but I would still like to play through the song a couple of times. Oh yeah, of course. With Decapitated, the, the one album I did with them, The Carnival Is Forever, we just played every song. We recorded three or four takes for every song and that's it. And then we just chose the parts. But I would, have always, I would always play the full song through from start to finish. And um, 
it just kind of works. And the same goes for my YouTube stuff for playthroughs. I usually learn the song that well that I feel like as if I would have to perform it live. And then I would just play, take one, take two, three, four, five. As long as I don't lose a stick, I would just keep going because it's a, it's a different thing. It's a different attitude. And it's funny that you mentioned the fourth song in the set. It's usually my third or fourth take or fifth, which are the best ones. Yeah. And then you can always go back and punch little things, but sure, sure. the body of the take, yeah, it's always between takes three and five, I've noticed. That's true. And another thing I like to do when I basically know that I kind of have enough, but you know, I, I could still record another one. I just like to say to myself, like, last chance to dance. And whenever I said that, it's just, you know, it it means for me, it doesn't matter anymore. You can just relax and just play for fun. And sometimes, sometimes, actually most of the time, but just saying that words, this take is the one that I can take the most out of it. Because it's just like, yeah, just play, see what happens. You know, you just, yeah, you're more loose. I've heard that movie directors do that too. Quentin Tarantino talked about doing that a lot. But uh, uh, Krim, I have to end the podcast now. I want to thank you very much for taking the time. It's always a pleasure to talk. I know we're going to be talking a lot soon anyways, but um, yeah, I, I'm glad we got to do this. Thank you very much for taking the time. Thank you very much for having me. It was awesome. Cool questions. And I hope, you know, you guys enjoyed listening to us talk a little bit about nerdy drum stuff and songwriting and whatnot. It's always fun. Sure. All right, man. Have a good one. Thank you. All right, then. Another URM podcast episode in the bag. Please remember to share our episodes with your friends, as well as post them to your Facebook and Instagram or any social media you use. Please tag me at URM Audio at URM Academy, and of course, tag our guests as well. I mean, they really do appreciate it. In addition, do you have any questions for me about anything? Email them to me at al at urm.academy. That's E-Y-A-L at U-R-M dot A-C-A-D-E-M-Y and use the subject line, answer me, al. All right then, till next time, happy mixing. You've been listening to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit urm.academy and press the podcast link today.